Yes. About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. You know about Hank Williams, the hillbilly Shakespeare, the king of country. His music influenced everyone from Johnny Cash and Elvis Presley to Bob Dylan and the Rolling Stones. But this is not about Hank Williams. This is about the woman who discovered him, his wife and manager, the mother of his son, the woman he couldn't live with or without, Audrey Mae Williams. This story is about a girl. When she met him, he was working at a medicine show. This was 1943, and old-time cure-alls were still being hawked by traveling hucksters and phony doctors, who assembled crowds to hear performers and then sold them bottles of snake oil between acts. Audrey Shepard was driving with her Aunt Ethel to a club in Troy, Alabama, but they didn't get far before they saw a crowd gathered around a makeshift stage. Just the back of a truck, really. They pulled over to see what the fuss was about, and what they saw was a skinny, dark-haired young man with a guitar. Audrey had always felt she had a psychic talent. When she was just a kid, she'd had a premonition of her brother's premature death at age 10. Listening to Hank Williams, she had another intuition. This guy will be number one on the Grand Old Opry one of these days. Mysticism aside, Audrey prided herself on recognizing good music when she heard it. When he was done performing, Hank waded into the crowd to sell a patented herbal remedy in a little glass bottle. As he approached Audrey's Oldsmobile, he started his pitch. Ma'am, don't you think you need... Then he got a look at Audrey, sitting behind the wheel, cool and slim and blonde, with the devil in her eyes, and corrected himself. No, ma'am, I don't believe you do. She liked his music. Now she liked his swagger. Aunt Ethel helped her out, inviting the young singer along to the honky-tonk they were headed to. Hank said he would love to, as long as they stuck around for his second show. They did. Then he climbed into the Oldsmobile, and they went off to make a night of it. Audrey was the kind of girl who liked to live a little. She had an independent streak. She'd learned to drive at 12, and at 17, she'd run off with a neighbor boy. They got married and had a baby, and then one day her young husband went to work and never came back. She was back in her parents' house now, a single mother working as a drugstore clerk. But that didn't keep her from kicking up her heels from time to time. She knew she was meant for bigger things, and she aimed to keep looking. They had a good time at the club that night. Such a good time that Hank asked her to come by and see him again the next day. When she did, though, he was a mess. Unshaven, shirtless, and hungover. She waited for him to clean up a little, then took him to get coffee and tomato juice at the grocery store. 
On the way, he explained how he'd been fired from his radio job for being a drunk. He sobered up, and she came to hear him play another show. Afterwards, he asked her if she'd meet him tomorrow and marry him. She said she'd think it over. A lot of women would have walked away from Hank right then. Audrey turned down marriage, but stuck around anyway. She'd heard him sing. He began working his way up from the snake oil circuit. By Labor Day in 1943, he was back in Montgomery playing hillbilly music. Then he got a few gigs playing as an opener for touring Grand Old Opry acts like Pee Wee King and Minnie Pearl. Poverty wafted off his stick-thin frame, but the crowd seemed to like him well enough. Audrey remained dedicated through a cycle of ups and downs. Unable to serve during the Second World War due to congenital spina bifida, a source of severe lifelong pain, Hank got a day job as a welder in the Mobile shipyards, and Audrey did too. They worked side by side in the welding pit. This isn't it, honey, she told him one night. You should put a band together, get back on the radio. So he moved back into his mother's boarding house in Montgomery and started a band he called the Drifting Cowboys. For every musician he recruited, he had them go down to the pawn shop and buy a blackjack. If you play with me, he told them, by God, you're going to need it. True to its name, the lineup of the Drifting Cowboys kept drifting. Either Hank lost musicians to the war effort, or else he ran them off with his temper. At one point, he hired a husband and wife singing duo, a couple named Doyle and Bernice. And to Audrey, that looked like the kind of thing she and Hank might do together, someday. Audrey had always nursed dreams of stardom, despite a voice that was amateurish at best. She talked Hank into having her come out on stage during his shows and sing a few songs with him. Their chemistry was good. It was just that Audrey couldn't stay on pitch to save her life. Hank privately asked the guitarists in the band to turn their amps up a bit when she sang, so as to drown her out. All this time, he kept asking her to marry him. Getting married wouldn't be a straightforward matter. First of all, their parents disapproved. Audrey's daddy thought Hank was a bum, while Hank's mother Lillian wasn't a fan of Audrey in the way she was intruding in his music and career. And then, getting married meant Audrey first had to get properly divorced, which meant waiting for her erstwhile husband to come home from the war. Finally, on December 4th, 1944, her divorce came through. They were supposed to wait 60 days after the divorce before being wed, but on December 15th, they were married anyway by a justice of the peace who also ran a gas station. They had the ceremony there, under the Texaco star. Hank was careful for months, staying sober for Audrey. But one night, after they married, she was cooking dinner for the drifting cowboys at his trailer, and he got good and liquored up. She told him off. He threw her clothes into the mud. She called the police and had him spend the night in the drunk tank. One of the musicians had to pay $30 to get him back out. Come back and see us, called the dust sergeant as they left. He promised Audrey he'd stop drinking, for good this time. It was a promise he'd make many, many times. 
Nonetheless, she was determined to clean him up and make something of him. She saw their relationship as an epic love story, and it couldn't end before he was a star, and her with him. So she went to work on him. She insisted that he change his clothes and shave every day. She took him to the menswear stores so he'd have something to wear instead of jeans for publicity photos, picking out sophisticated double-breasted suits. She had ideas for fanciful suits, adorned with music notes, took them to a designer, and made them reality. He might be a country boy, but he cleaned up okay. And she became his de facto agent. She convinced his former bosses at WSFA Radio to let him back on the air in his old morning show slot. She talked a local print shop into printing up, on credit, a hundred copies of the Hank Williams songbook, a collection of his lyrics, and she wrote the introduction herself, noting, He's happily married, and he and Miss Audrey are already famous as a team. Neither of those statements were quite true. They weren't yet famous, and they weren't always happy but she figured they'd be true before long. She was writing beautiful songs during this time, songs full of longing and anguish. The titles were like a diary of his and Audrey's frequent blow-ups and reconciliations. I bid you free to go, a helpless broken heart. I just wish I could forget. Am I too late to say I'm sorry? Someday you'll be lonesome too. Even his mother recognized that his relationship with Audrey lit his creativity on fire. Never in the history of country music were so many songs to pour out of the love of one boy for one girl, Lily Williams would say years later. Out of their joys, troubles, spats, and trials came dozens and scores of love ballads. It was Audrey's idea to take some of those songs to the Nashville office of the A. Cuff Rose Publishing House. She'd heard that Fred Rose was willing to meet with an unknown songwriter. Hank was nervous, but she told him, If I have to push you every step of the way, you're going. When they walked in, Fred was playing ping pong with his son Wesley. My husband would like to sing you some songs, Audrey announced. The two men raised their eyebrows at each other. Do we have the time? Fred asked. They did. It was the beginning of a professional relationship between Hank and Fred that would last for years. It was Fred who secured Hank his first recording contract. First with Sterling Records, then, in 1947, with MGM. Audrey's dream was coming true. Royalty checks started trickling in. They were finally able to move out of Hank's mother's boarding house and put a down payment on a house of their own. Audrey sent for her young daughter, Lycretia, to come live with them. And Hank became the only father figure she would ever know. And as for Hank, he never treated Lycretia like another man's child. He quickly saw her as his own daughter. Do you think Lycretia will ever call me daddy? Hank asked Audrey one morning. The question caught Audrey off guard, but it made her happy. She and Lycretia talked that night, and from then on, Hank was always daddy to her. As ever, that domestic bliss didn't last long. Even as Audrey helped his career rekindle, Hank's sobriety was faltering. He was fired again from the radio for showing up drunk at 6 a.m. One night he passed out on the way to a gig and the band had to go on stage without him. 
Other nights, they would scour the town's bars to find him before a show. His spending habits meant the new house was soon on the brink of foreclosure. Audrey made him check into a sanitarium, where he suffered through the DTs until he dried out. At least he was usually careful not to drink around Lycretia. But once, the girl walked in on a drunken brawl between her parents. She turned around and ran out of the room, but the image stayed with her. In January of 1948, things got so bad that Audrey took Lycretia, moved back in with her parents, and filed for divorce. But by May, when the divorce was granted, they were already back together, and the divorce would be voided a year later. The pendulum of their relationship had swung back to bliss. It just never stayed that way. In 1948, Hank got a job at the Louisiana Hayride, a popular radio show that was broadcast all over the Southeast United States. The manager had told Hank he'd hire him if he could stay sober for six months. Hank agreed. In his mind, moving to Shreveport sounded like making a fresh start, and he thought he could leave his bad behavior behind. So Hank and Audrey and Lycretia moved to Shreveport in the northwestern part of the state. A few weeks later, Audrey told Hank she was pregnant. Hank was overjoyed. He leaped into his work with renewed vigor, drawing crowds to his live shows and pouring on the charm for his radio segments. He was sponsored on air by a syrup company whose business was on the rocks. But with Hank singing their jingle on the radio and calling himself the syrup soppin' man, by the end of the year, they were in the black. Audrey insisted on joining him on stage and in the recording booth for the first seven months. But it was a difficult pregnancy. There were times when she was in danger of losing the baby, and eventually she had to stay home. As her due date drew near, she was miserable, sweltering in the Shreveport humidity, angry at Hank, who was away on tour most of the time. She gave birth to a boy, Randall Hank Williams, later known as Hank Jr., or, as his father dubbed him, Bocephus, after an Opry regular. Audrey felt a little distant from her baby. What she wanted most was to be back on stage. What she didn't know was that the career she had built with Hank was about to be taken out of her hands. Only a few weeks after Hank Jr.'s birth, Hank was given a shot to be on the show of his and Audrey's dreams the epicenter of country music, the Grand old Opry. Hank was a star from the minute he stepped out onto the Grand old Opry stage and started to play. From that moment, his and Audrey's lives were full of fame and money. Audrey started spending lavishly to renovate the house they bought in Nashville, making it a kind of precursor to Elvis's Graceland. It had a wrought iron gate adorned with the sheet music to Hank's first hit, Lovesick Blues, a two-story ballroom, monographed window shades, and marble sinks in the bathrooms. As a final touch, she had it all painted gold. Hank's opinion of all of this came through in the songs he wrote. A house without love was one. I just don't like this kind of living was another. For his part, 
he was busy spending money on a stable of horses for him and Lycretia to ride, and rhinestone emblazoned outfits to wear on stage. There wasn't a place for Audrey on stage next to him. When he got his first nationally syndicated radio show, she was featured in the first four episodes, singing off-key and bantering with him. But after that, the station made it clear they wanted Hank and Hank alone. She rarely went to Nashville to see the Opry, professing to disdain the yokel types who performed there. The real reason? It had been her dream, too. And only he had achieved it. Now, she was back where she started. Alone, taking care of a baby while her husband was God knows where doing God knows what. She did have one role left that couldn't be taken away from her. She was still Hank's only effective minder. She was still expected to wrangle him into attending the events he was supposed to attend. He sometimes decided he'd rather go fishing. And she was still the one they called when Hank got drunk. He managed sobriety throughout most of 1949, through tours of Canada and Europe, Audrey was with him on that one, and all over the U.S. When he fell off the wagon, it was in Baltimore. Waiting for her husband in the hotel lobby, she wondered whether she'd lost the love she'd had for him, whether it was finally gone. But she sobered him up and traveled with the tour onto Washington, D.C. She figured as long as she was there, she had a chance of getting on stage again, singing in front of an audience with her husband. This time, Hank refused. He and Audrey would go on to perform together many times, to the displeasure of his bookers, and record together, to the displeasure of his critics. But as time went on, she went on fewer and fewer of the tours. She wasn't invited on television shows with him. When Hank started fielding offers for movie parts, there was no discussion that she might be cast too. And all the while, Hank was writing bitter, grieving songs about a hard-hearted woman. Audrey was only too aware that everyone figured her to be that woman. He wrote one called Cold, Cold Heart, which hinted that he placed the blame for her hardness toward him on the painful memory of her own previously broken heart. It's only one simplified perspective on their complex relationship. But Hank's sadness and frustration in the lyric is palpable. The song went to number one on the country music charts and became a crossover pop hit for Tony Bennett the same year. Though their professional successes should have been a cause for celebration, Hank's songs were chronicling the very real-life disillusion of their marriage. Audrey's resentment and Hank's destructive refusal to take responsibility were both born of pain, physical and emotional, each exacerbating the other, and it was not sustainable. Over the next two years, Hank continued to deteriorate mentally and physically. Finally, in December 1951, he had long overdue back surgery to correct the undiagnosed spina bifida that had caused him excruciating pain throughout his life. He had to cancel a string of holiday shows in Washington, D.C. The Opry Booker told Audrey she could sing in his stead. For the first time, she'd be on stage on her own, without Hank. A few days later, she went back to pick up her things. It was the day before her first solo show. As she was leaving the house, she heard four gunshots fired behind her. In that moment, a million emotions crossed her mind at once. She didn't know whether he was trying to kill her or himself. 
she escaped the house and went to Washington. On New Year's Eve, after the show, she called him. Hank Williams, I will never live with you again. If you leave me, he answered, I won't live a year. This time, their divorce proceedings were bitter and public and permanent. By October, Hank was remarried to a 19-year-old named Billie Jean Jones, with whom he had a volatile and violent relationship, the only kind he knew how to have. But he was still writing songs for Audrey, now pleading her forgiveness. Ashamed, take these chains from my heart. He was telling people he was going to leave Billie Jean and go back to Audrey. Years later, Lycretia would say it could have happened. Late in 1952, her mother had said that Daddy was coming home, but he never did. New Year's Day, 1953, a year to the day after she left him for good, Audrey got an early morning phone call. Hank had been on his way to play a show in Canton, Ohio. He'd fallen asleep, and it took his driver a while to realize that he wasn't going to be waking up. He was 29 years old. The police found his effects in the car, a gun, a felt hat, and a notebook in which he'd written lyrics to a song that would never be finished. Words about a woman he still loved and a romance that couldn't survive the fatal daylight. Even though they weren't married at the time of his death, Audrey still felt like his widow. As with Audrey, Billie Jean's marriage to Hank was in question, and for the same reason. They'd married too soon after her divorce. She'd barely known him a year. Hank's mother Lillian, who had hated Audrey, hated Billie Jean still more, and at the funeral had embraced Audrey in mutual grief. Neither of them spoke a word to Billie Jean. But then Billie Jean filed suit to prevent Audrey from using the name Mrs. Hank Williams, either professionally or personally, asking the court for $100,000 in damages if she did. Audrey ended up solving the problem by paying $30,000 for Billie Jean to stop calling herself Hank Williams' widow. But it was only the beginning of a stream of lawsuits over Hank's name in a state in which Audrey would be entangled for the rest of her life. She wasn't done with her dreams yet, though. After Hank's death, she tried performing as Mrs. Audrey Williams, even forming a band called the Drifting Cowgirls, but it was not a success. Despite her thirst for the spotlight, Audrey's true talent, honed during her years as Hank's de facto manager, was on the business side of entertainment. Her next project was her son, Hank Jr., who early in his life displayed a natural musical ability. She took control, driving her son's career in the same way she'd driven his father's. When he was still prepubescent, she had him touring with a new slate of drifting cowboys performing many of Hank's songs, and in the same style. She got him on stage at the Opry by the time he was 11. And by 16, he signed a $100,000 recording contract with MGM. She hustled as a talent scout, too, keeping her ear out for the next country star in hopes of alleviating her growing financial problems. She became a booking agent and a rare female presence in country music publishing. There was one more stab at a music career at the end of the 1960s, but it again failed to catch on, and she quit show business for good in 1970 
she became estranged from her son and struggled herself with substance abuse before succumbing to congestive heart failure in 1975. Close to the end, Audrey had a dream. Hank was there, looking young and healthy, the way he was when they met. In her dream, they made love the way they used to, and he told her everything was going to be all right. Hank Williams's life and career made an indelible impact on the landscape of popular music, inspiring books, films, and still more songs, and elevating country music to international appeal. The songs of loneliness and longing he wrote have lived on nearly 70 years after his death and reverberate in the music of subsequent generations and artists still captivated by his plain-spoken poetry. But this isn't about them. This is about Audrey Williams, a complicated woman, frustrated and damaged by the world, who nevertheless discovered, cultivated, inspired, and championed one of the greatest songwriters and performers in American history. This is about a girl. About a Girl comes to you from Double Elvis and is executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler. It was created, written, and narrated by me, Eleanor Wells, with additional writing and editing by S.I. Rosenbaum. Scott Janowitz is the show's producer and mixer and provides music and editorial support. Audio editing by Matt Tahaney. If you like the show, please subscribe to About a Girl on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to leave a rating and review. For more great shows from Double Elvis, visit DoubleElvis.com. That's DoubleElvis.com. Special thanks to Beth Petty and the Hank Williams Museum in Montgomery, Alabama for helping with the research for this episode.